Welcome to a special PyCon 2011 edition of LocoCast. Recently, Rick Harding got the opportunity to speak with Michael Ford. Michael Ford refers to himself as a lowly software engineer working for Canonical. He talks about his experience working at Canonical and about the PyCon conference. Alright, so I'm Rick Harding here on location on PyCon 2011. I'm sitting here with... Uh, Michael Ford from Canonical. Uh, what's your title out there these days? I guess I'm just a lowly software engineer. A lowly software engineer. Oh, I find that <laughs> I think hard it to says believe. that on my official title, lowly software engineer. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that means that you get to write code. That's, that's good. That's right, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't be doing anything else. That's awesome. Um, so what are you doing with them these days? I'm working on the ISD team, which um, I think stands for... Um, Infrastructure services development. Uh-huh. So we, th- this particular team, we we um, look after a whole bunch of projects, and the, the particular team I'm on look after a couple of uh, Django projects. One of those is the single sign-on. So when whenever you sign into right. Canonical.com or Launchpad.net or Ubuntu.com, there's a single identity that um, that you have, and that's so there's an open ID behind that, and, and and that's the same identity you have on all of those websites. Oh, so, so that's interesting. That's a Django service that you guys have then that, right, that yeah. supplies yeah. open ID support. Yep, and also the the payment uh, gateway processor, which uh, for things like the software center and Ubuntu One is switching over to using us shortly. Oh, that's um, very so actually cool. The ability to take money off people, which is great. So I'm I'm one of the few people in the com- company whose main focus is on. Uh, Enhancing our ability to take money off people. Wow, money's good. Um, so I know you were playing around with uh, the Hudson stuff over there. I, I hear that uh, there's a lot of unit testing that goes on, and I know that there's been a lot of work to kind of get a continuous integration process over there. Were you working with some of the getting things bootstrapped into Hudson and stuff over there? Yeah, we've, we've done that in our team. Uh, I think uh, a lot of the teams, are pro- we like to share, share information about how we do things, um, but uh, all the teams have their own focus on how they do their testing, how they do things like continuous integration. And, and yeah, we've been particularly working at that. We, we spent a week be, um, before I came to PyCon getting everything um, up on um, Jenkins and getting oh, continuous so. integration going, running out of suite under it, getting the, the, the reports out. I mean, that, that's relatively straightforward to do, yeah. partic- particularly with the Django test suite and... Um, and uh, which uses unit tests under the hood. We we use a little project called PyJ Unit XML, which will just from your test suite will just spit out this um, J Unit XML format. That uh, oh, okay, so you guys Jen- aren't using Jenkins like to read. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So you guys aren't using like the nose with X Unit type stuff to run. The I think test. we tried a couple. We tried a couple of those, uh, and um, we had funky issues with kind of all of the different ones right. we tried. Um, Possibly as a probably as a result of our slightly funky <laughs> setup, um, and th- but this is uh, PyJ Unit XML is is really brain dead simple. You just have a, a test result object that you you put in place of the one you were using, and um, and then bam, it spits out this so uh, this J Unit XML. So it's very easy. So we're getting Jenkins Jenkins and Ubuntu in the future here. <laughs> or I would hope so. We uh, would hope so. Yeah, yeah uh, I, I I'm just a lowly software developer. Just so, so yeah, I can't don't make those important decisions. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> Well, that's very cool. Um, so I, I'm actually I'm kind of floored that that's Django. Uh, did you guys have a lot of problems or anything trying to turn Django in, you know, which is uh, into like a uh, I don't know. It seemed like an, an unnatural fit to like do some kind of special open ID app like that in Django. No, um, no, no, I don't know. I mean, to to be fair, I've had more. I've worked a lot more with the the payment service code, which okay. is all, which is also because it's used by. Um, 
the, a, a lot of um, the use of that comes from client applications rather than through the web and then we have some web pages when you go to actually confirm the payment and enter your, your details. But So we're in exp um, primarily a lot of the functionality is exposed via an API. But Django Django is very good That's at that cool. sort of thing. Um, interestingly, the, the, um, I used to work a, a lot with Iron Python. I'm still um, one of the Iron Python maintainers. Um, wrote a book called Iron Python in Action which, uh -huh. uh, on Iron Python, which is still a very good book. I can hardly <laughs> recommend it. <laughs> um, anyway, commercial over. Uh, but but the, the job I was doing before I came to uh, Canonical was um, working with Django. It was Django on Linux. But then the front end was uh, in Silverlight. And this was something that the, the customers specified. They wanted mm -hmm. to use Silverlight. Um, God bless them. <laughs> I was um, going to say, uh, yeah, that, what's their new plan? Uh, <laughs> well, no, Silverlight is still going strong. Um, <laughs> But the, the great thing about Silverlight is that you can program it on, um, in, with Python code that runs inside, inside the browser. So um, what I built oh, for them or, with, with another guy is this 20,000 line application that runs entirely in the browser. Um, and was speaking to Django, just JSON backwards and forwards um, to Django. So that was, not, that was using the, the Django views, now, the Django um, models, but, but not, not using any of the templating language. And again, uh, Django worked out just right. fine for that. And, and it was great fun to program. I mean, your whole stack is Python end-to-end, -end and you're writing all this Python code that runs in the browser. It's, it, is that because of Iron Python, that it's yeah, running in the, right. in the browser actually, like that? That's not, not, Silverlight doesn't expose it, it, Python uh, natively underneath, but you were using no, that, that's Iron right. Python. I mean, that's Python one of the to... difficulties of CPython is that uh, people have, several people have tried and failed to, to secure and sandbox it, and really you need sort of OS-level. Mm -hmm. Sandboxing for that. Well, that's for really that to work. That, that's what the the app engine does uh, fundamentally. Google that's, app engine. Yeah, well, that's really kind of cool. Because I, I was, was going to ask you, um, as someone who doesn't really do much, you know, uh, on Microsoft side of things, I, I'm curious, like, what the use cases and some example uses of Iron Python are, um, and and that right there is, you know, well, that, yeah, that, Python that's and Silverlight's are really I mean, interesting. Iron Python is a great way of getting Python into places that are sort of fully sold into the, the Microsoft stack. So if you've got a, a development shop where you've got a lot of C Sharp around, you've got a lot of .NET mm -hmm. code around, then plugging Iron Python into that is, is dead easy. And once you've started doing that, then you start writing a few scripts in it, you start automating your builds with it, uh, mm -hmm. um, and before you know it, you know, Python is taking over. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Iron Python is still quite widely used. It's quite widely used within um, Microsoft itself, uh, even though they're they're no longer putting development resources into it. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer, but it also it means the project's been fully turned over to the community. Mm -hmm. So Jeff Hardy, uh, myself, and Dino Veland, who um, was the the full the full time Microsoft developer who who was working on it, is still putting a lot of work on it. We've just had a two point seven final release. Um, okay. Work on the we're going to be working on two point seven one and um, a Python three compatible release. Um, Python 3 is sort of a fairly long roadmap, but it's a much better fit for Iron Python because of the the big change in Python 3 was the the strings become Unicode by default, and, and Iron Python is already there. The underlying .NET pl platform strings are Unicode, so it actually probably means just ripping a load of code out. Or, oh, that's or, cool! Or removing a load of hacks to yeah. uh, for putting binary data into Unicode strings. So, so uh, uh, but but going going back a step. Um, with Microsoft handing the project over to the community, we, there are all these people who've done third-party implementations of um, Python standard library modules, and we can start to bundle those uh, with the with the Iron Python distribution. Oh, and Microsoft cool. were never very keen, um, which is an understatement, to bundle <laughs> other people's code with Iron Python. Right. Um, so now we can do that, which is um, well, that's awesome. It's one of the great things I love about Python is the standard library. It's amazing how much free code you get. 
free tools just by you know by saying I'm using Python um, right out of the box. Right, batteries included. Exactly. Um, so that, that, I mean that's kind of cool. I know I've I've seen people use. Um, uh, I'm sorry, with I forget the I'm blanking on the Java implementation of Python now. Jython. And Jython have used that because they're Python developers, but there's some great uh, Java library that they use, and so they'll actually run it on Linux. Can you can you run Iron Python on Linux? Is it, could it be like a mono replacement almost? Where one of the ideas is mono is you can take your mono code and go take it over to Windows well, and run your app and run it on Linux as well, or run it on other OSs. This is another advantage of um, Iron Python having been forked out to the community is that pretty much every release of Iron Python would would break something in in mono previously, oh, no. and so now we're we're getting set up to run continuous integration on Mono, so we're doing much more testing on, on Mono. Novella uh, are, are taking Iron Python under their wing from, from that point of view. They're going to be shipping both Iron Python okay. and Ruby recent builds um, with, with versions of Mono. So yeah, if you install Mono, certainly from the, the Novell distri- direct from the Novell distributions, you'll get Iron Python and Iron Ruby, and it'll be tested and it'll work there. Oh, so that's interesting. So, you, so in theory, in the future, you could actually use Python to do your app and take it over to Windows and run it, but you're doing it through Iron Python through the. You, you certainly the, could. Uh, I, I mean, I think one, one of the big use cases for Iron Python is where you've got a, a .NET application already, so you're a .NET developer, and you want to expose some kind of scripting interface. And there, there are quite a few mm. examples of this. So, Rhino 3D, I think, is one of them, and um, I think some of the um, there's one of the big GIS applications um, exposes Python scripting through Iron Python, and that's perhaps a more common use case for Iron Python is where you've got a, a bunch of code that's already in .NET and you want to provide um, some kind of interface, even if it's just for interactive exploration, like a developer tool mm-hmm. where you can sort of hook into the guts of your application and start sort of wandering around the stack and introspecting stuff. I, 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 Python and Iron Python is great for that, but particularly for exposing a user scripting right. interface. For If you want cross-platform application building, CPython is already pretty great for that. So. Oh, yeah. Okay, very cool. Um, so I noticed I was walking by and I noticed you're, you're running on a Mac. You work for Canonical, so I'm assuming you've got some Ubuntu machines running. You're very involved in this Iron Python community, which is Python on Windows. Um, boy, are you are you insane or, or what? I mean, how can you, <laughs> well, how can you keep them all straight? Po- possibly not related to my OS choice. <laughs> so the Mac is still currently my, my primary machine. Um, but I, for my day job, I do all my developments in Ubuntu, and I hadn't I hadn't used Ubuntu a great deal before coming to Canonical, and it's mm-hmm. um, you know it's been one of those things I'd always meant to try it out, but got to have a reason. You've got to have a reason to do yeah. these things, and I'm really enjoying working with Ubuntu. Very pleasantly surprised by it. Re- really, really liking it. Um, I you know I always say that I I spent some time on the Mac, but um, as when it comes to development, I just nothing compares to Linux. Just having you know, AppKit, I mean, uh, the packages, all the packaging system and all the tools and all the dev libraries and all the stuff, it just seems... For, for, the, for, the, for, for the hardcore dependencies, yeah, having them an app getaway is fantastic. For, for Python packages, I kind of like to work with bleeding edge, so relying right. on what's in, you know, available to AppKit for, for, for Python libraries is, is not well, always yeah. such a wonderful world to be in. But certainly for getting the, for, for, for building the... Um, your, your C dependencies and, you know, the, the other system yeah. packages that you're depending well, on. Like, yeah, I, that's, that's of, a great experience. Yeah, one of my examples is, like, I just ran into, I saw someone having problems trying to install the PIL, the Python imaging library on right. a Mac. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, and it's uh, like, I can't that's, help that but That could go, be great fun. Yes, I, I've, I've done that a few times. And I just go, well, on my, my Linux machine, I app get install python-dev, I app get install, I think there's one other dev library I need, and then I pip install PIL, and it builds, and everything's magically yep. delicious. Yep. 
Um, those are the kind of examples that I have where we're like, you know, as a, as a Linux user, yeah, I that, feel that's like. That's a nicer experience. Yeah. Well, that's very kind of cool. So do you do you use a Windows much anymore? If you use Windows 7? I, I tend to use Windows um, um, for, uh, yeah, I've been using Windows 7 for a while. It, it's fine. I, yeah. I, I don't hate Windows. I was a, I switched over to using the Mac about three or four years ago, maybe. Um, and for a long time, was de de developing on Windows, but using Mac, um, developing on Windows for my day job and using a, a, a Mac for everything <laughs> else. Um, very uh, split split personality. <laughs> now I'm now I'm developing on Ubuntu for my day job and, and using a Mac for for everything else. Um, do you tend to do it in a virtual machine? Do you have a machine well, dedicated I do. for I, it? I, yeah, I'm I'm using VMware Fusion, which is sort of one of the common ones that people mm -hmm. use, um, and and that works great. And it's great because I can run functional tests inside my VM, which mm -hmm. are taken over the mouse, so I can't do anything else with the, with the <laughs> VM. But I can still be using. Um, Still be using the rest of the computer. So, so even if I, um, or perhaps when I switch over to um, Ubuntu as my my primary OS, um, developing inside a VM, there are all sorts of advantages to it. There's there's been a lot of talk at this PyCon a, a, a tool called Vagrant, which yeah. I think is a Ruby tool, which allows you to manage um, virtual box. VMs using VirtualBox. Yeah. And um, one of the things I use Windows for still is for compatibility testing. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I'm using a tool called Tox, which is a, 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 a Python tool that when you're developing libraries, it allows you to it'll run all of your tests with several versions of Python, including things like PyPy and Jython, and it'll run your Sphinx, Sphinx doc test, so it'll check that your Sphinx documentation builds correctly, it'll check that all your doc tests pass, and then it'll aggregate all of the, um, the results and say, well, I ran tests on all these versions mm -hmm. of Python, these ones failed, these one passed, or everything passed and you're good. So what I'd really like to be able to do is, is automate spinning up um, a Windows VM, running my tests in that, and then feeding the, feeding the results back. So I, I, as well as doing cross-Python, version testing or implementation testing wow. from a single yeah. command i can also spin up a couple of different oss and and uh, run the tests i know tox is by a guy called holger Krekel, who also wrote um pi.test he's written a lot of amazing tools and he's also written one called execnet which is all about um communicating via ssh with um with other machines and running tests remotely and getting the results back so i think the combination of tox vagrant execnet uh, it could be something very interesting there. Yeah, there was a, for those of you guys checking in, there was a great talk on talks here at PyCon. That was the videos, Mellon, I think. Yeah. yeah, the videos are up. So definitely check that. I know it's on my list. I didn't see the talk, but it's on my list because uh, obviously with Python 3 heading out, the, there's a lot of posting going on about trying to figure out how to how to take your libraries and maintain yep, both yep. versions, 2.6.3 and 9. It seems like a great tool to kind it's of help a very, with that. For, for library developers, it's a very common problem. And we're, up until now, we've all been kind of, Building custom scripts that'll um, run on side-by-side -side installations. The nice thing about Tox is it does everything. It creates a virtual env. It runs all your tests. You specify the, the dependencies, so it installs the dependencies into a little um, isolated virtual env environment. So it's all completely separated from your development environment. It's a yeah, lovely little tool. Very awesome. useful. And it's another reason why, if you guys are not using virtual env, you are. I, I, don't know. I still say you're doing Python wrong if you're not using a virtual env. <laughs> it is that amazing when you start doing some of this stuff. Um, but speaking of testing, so you've uh, you're the author of a mocking library called Mock, very right, very simple right. to remember. And uh, I'd tell you from listening to PyCon, I just started using it just a little bit before PyCon here, and I come here and I feel very justified now, because uh, it's uh, very well thought of. Um, and between uh, that and um, uh, Gary Bernhardt's library, uh, Dingus seemed to be the the top two. Um, well, Dingus Dingus is fantastic. Um, 
It was a, a fork of an early version of Mock, so it has a good heritage. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> there you go. Very early fork, you know, before before you could even easy install Mock, I think. But yeah, you gave a great talk. Well, I mean, you gave kind of a beginner talk here about about Mock, but right, I thought get, there was a great, and... great line in there where um, you, you mentioned that if if writing your tests are becoming painful by mocking things out, you're, you're doing it wrong. Right. One, of, one of the things I talked about is um, not to over-mock. Um, so mock is this little, um, it's, a, it's a module you can pip install mock, um, easy install mock or download it off PyPI. Um, and it provides a core class, which is a mock object, which um, you can do pretty much anything to, um, but it records what, what you've done to it and you can fi- configure it to say, well, it should return this value or this attribute, should, this method when you call it should return this value. Um, and so on. So you can use this to sort of mock out parts of your, your APIs when you're testing. So you, if there are parts you don't want the in your system under test, well, we don't want it calling the, this code because that's going to hit the database or the network, or this is going to be really hard to configure. So we'll just replace those with mocks for, 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 the, for this test. Right. Um, and ideally, of course, for, for, for unit tests, you should test as much as possible in isolation. So you're just testing the, the particular code path you're interested in. And the, and the danger can be that when, when you look at your unit tests and you start looking at unit of implement, units of implementation and you start thinking, right, well, I need to mock this out and this out. And, um, and what you can end up with is with your tests very tightly coupled to the implementation details of your code. And, right. and you find that your tests start looking like a more v- verbose and um, harder to read duplicate of the system, <laughs> the, the code for the system under, uh, under test. And, and then, of course, whenever some implementation detail changes you find you know even if the the behavior of your code hasn't changed you know you uh, what perhaps swap the order of two arguments of some private um api and your test break yeah um <clears throat> and so all i i talk about testing to, to to units of behavior rather than units of implementation and yeah the rule of thumb i suggested is where mocking is making your tests easier to write where it's making them shorter where it's making them easier to understand then that's a good sign that that um mocking is useful and helpful if you're finding that using mocks is making your tests harder to write if it's making them longer <laughs> if it's making them more painful then maybe it's not the right thing, thing to do. yeah it's it's great because it's one of the common uh complaint of people that try to get into to testing where that's like oh I, I i can't stand it because every time i change my code i have to change i have to rewrite my tests as well and i think that's a good uh you know a good thing to remember out there is that if you're changing your tests every single time you make one small change to your code, then perhaps your tests aren't quite set up in, in, in the best way for you going forward there. Yeah, uh, but inevitably refactoring your code, it means, oh, yeah. means changing tests. But um, I mean, I've been involved in enough refactors and, and even at just adding new functionality to. Uh, and I remember the days of where changing code and then thinking, well, I kind of think this still works, so I'd better try it out. And the sort of and the pain of changing things and then not really knowing what you've broken or if you've broken something. And I mean, I wouldn't go back to those days for anything. Of course, having a good test suite doesn't guarantee you've broken no. anything. Yeah. But uh, another rule of thumb I like is if it's not tested, it's definitely broken. <laughs> that's a that's a good thing to remember. If, if it is tested, it may not be broken. So if you are getting into your testing and stuff, though, I will say I I've tried getting into mocking things out, and, and I've been, I'm on a mission for my testing. I'm nowhere near where I should be, but I'm I'm slowly working my way there. And I know I've tried. Um, I think it's Mocky or something. The Google mock. The Google library. one is Mocks, I think. Mocks. Yeah, I tried that. I just I don't know why it just didn't seem to fit my brain, and I had a hard time with it. And I've tried a couple others, um, and I, I know when I got Mock, someone recommended it to me, and I went and tried it out. It 
it clicked a little bit more. And I find my, I'm writing more tests now because using mock, That's I great. find That's it great. easier to write the tests, um, easier to get into and, and, and all that. So When mocking first sort of came around and it was part of the sort of whole rise of testing and thinking about how do we test, um, so a bunch of guys, they, they came up with this, this concept of mocking. And the, the original mocks followed this pattern of record and replay where you specify, you set up your mocks, you create your mocks, and then you set up ahead of time how you expect them to be used. Then you call your system under uh, test, and then usually there's a, a verify or a replay step that then checks everything was used as it should have been. Um, and so my mind, that kind of puts stuff backwards. That puts your asserts about how stuff should be used before your call to your code. Right. And um, a few years ago, going back to about the same time as I released mock, kind of, in, well, entirely coincidentally, um, there was a kind of recognition in the testing community that for many people, this was harder to understand. It was kind of a bit of a barrier to entry um, to, to, to testing effectively. And um, the, uh, the the name for the for the pattern that was being suggested as an alternative was um, the AAA pattern, the um, arrange, act, assert pattern. Uh, I, I, I called it in some of my own writing the um, uh, action assertion pattern where you you, d you do your arranging you you set up the system under test maybe put your mocks in place then you call your um, your mm -hmm. your production code you call the system under test and then make the asserts about what should have happened and uh, that tends to be easier for people to understand it yeah. tends to, and it's often less verbose because often you'll have a bunch of tests that um, test particular functionality and then you'll maybe have a couple of tests that just test very particular corner cases um, and so for those, you may be mocking out a bunch of stuff, but you don't really care about how that stuff is used because it's just this one particular detail you're interested in. So if you're using mocks that require you to configure every use, mm -hmm. then the kind of what, what am I actually asserting in this particular test, this particular test case kind of gets lost amid, amidst the noise. So having these, um, these mocks that are, I think, the... If you go back to the, the statically typed <laughs> terminology that these guys who... Um, we're thinking particularly around the the Java language of the different types of mock use cases. So they they talk about mocks and stubs and fakes and spies. Um, and uh, I guess in a statically typed language, you probably have a different implementation for all of these different use cases. Where um, mock is really it's a spy that allows for post mortem um, examination of of how how it was used. And yeah, it, it's it came out of when I was working with Resolver Systems, and we had a host of. We'd written hundreds of these little stubs all through our code base, and mm -hmm. um, I wrote Mock originally as a proof of concept, and we managed to replace, you know, literally hundreds of these things with just this one class that that just made life simpler and easier. No, it's definitely something to check out. I, I you know, what's kind of funny? You mentioned that you know uh, how much of our stuff is pulled from the Java world of of testing, and um. And yet, I, you know, I have a lot of friends that are like, well, you know, I do Java, I do .NET, I, I don't need as much testing because I have this, you know, this great thing, this right, concept of compiling. Codes that can be compiled <laughs> doesn't have bugs. That's the way it works, right? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, C libraries, you know, there are no bugs there, right? And yeah, C++, but C++ nobody's ever found a bug in C++ code. But. So much of our stuff, though, comes from, like, the Java, you know, the first implementation coming across as a re-implementation of the way it was in Java. And yet, uh, you know, the, the attitude over there, it, I want to, you know, obviously blanket statements and all that but it, but it is kind of funny uh, how much of you know java api -ish stuff come across and, and i think languages. these days a lot of the a lot of the thinking about testing and um uh i mean there's a lot's happened in the ruby world and yeah um, no i and, and python as well and uh, it, it's it's interesting because Re resolver systems so that that was a company i was doing um iron python development with mm -hmm. for, um for a, i was with them for nearly five years i think um 
and they they decided on writing a .NET application. But the the guy Giles Thomas, who was the um, the CEO and CTO, the boss, was a big fan of test driven developments, mainly having done it with Java before, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea was, I mean, they were writing a, a desktop uh, .NET application, um, so you you do that in C sharp, right? Um, right. Uh, but they 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 wanted this. Um, they wanted an embedded. Um, interpreted language as part of that was a core part of the product and they, they found Iron Python and they started to kind of evaluate it and found it did everything they need but they also found that um, testing with dynamic languages because you don't have the compiler fighting against you at yeah. every turn is just so much easier um, and I think that's why in, in, in particularly in very recent years that it's been uh, I mean the small talk community has always been very big into testing but the, yeah. the Python and the Ruby community where um where a, a, a lot of the sort of exciting action has been in the last few years, that, that there's been a lot of thinking in, in those communities, and really the Ruby community is a, is ahead of us in the, the Python community in, in terms of tools. Yeah, no, I know when Rails came out, that was a really big thing. I was looking, I was peeking at Rails coming from the PHP world, and the fact that when you installed your, you know, you, you constructed your Rails app right out of the box, there was. Uh, tools that ran tests, there was a place to put tests, there were example tests, you know, was kind of new to me coming from the PHP world, where here's this, here's this framework that basically threw tests upon you right out of the box, and I was like, right, oh, that's kind right. of interesting, and, and now you're getting that, you know, you get that now with a lot of the, the Python frameworks as right, well. Right. That, Django has a lot of good support for testing. Yeah. That's, that's getting better in Django 1.3 as well, where uh, Unit Test 2 has been integrated into, into Django with um, Unit Test 2 is a backport of a uh, the standard library unit test um, module has had a lot of uh, really good stuff done to it in Python 2.7 and mm-hmm. Python 3.2, which I've been quite heavily involved with. And the the, uh, the unit test 2 package is a backboard of, of all those uh, uh, interesting new features, and uh, a lot of them very very you know can really help improve your tests. Uh, cleanup functions is one I'm particularly a fan of, uh, but yeah. there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there, and and that's now available by default to to Django users in version 1.3. I know, I know they did a, Django did a lot of, it seemed like good work uh, speeding up the test suite and things as well. I remember, uh, I follow a few uh, Django developers on Twitter and I remember seeing a lot of posts where they were actually digging in and trying to find where the slow bits were and, and bootstrapping yeah, yeah. the tests and stuff. So uh, I'm a... And, and that's again something, that it, it was interesting in, in my talk in Mock, um, I talked about not over-mocking and right. um, not overdoing the isolation, immediately followed by Gary Bernhardt, uh, who we mentioned <laughs> earlier, is the, the author of, uh, of Dingus, and his talk was um, was about unit testing, what it really means to unit test and how your unit test suite. Really, you should be able to run it in a few seconds, and even if you've got hundreds and maybe even thousands of tests, that's still possible, and, and one of the ways to achieve it is to test things really in isolation. Yeah. And to, um, and that the Django style testing uh, where you, you fetch things through the client mm-hmm. um, and you're, exerc- you're not just exercising perhaps the little bit of code that you want mm-hmm. to test, but you're ex- actually um, exercising the whole stack, the URL routing, the, um, when really the, the bit of code you want to test is maybe just the view. And, and I'm a big believer in having integration tests and functional tests where mm-hmm. you do exercise the whole stack of your code. But that is different from unit testing. And, and, um, and certainly for unit testing, it, it's very possible to make your your whole test suite run very fast, mm-hmm. but it's something you have to think about. You know, you, when you get to the point where you, your whole test suite is taking two hours, and you, well, that's <laughs> Django's fault. Their damn test client yeah, and well. da- database support is so damn slow, and it's like, well, actually, just to test these four lines of code, you're actually what you're actually running is probably like ten thousand lines of code. You know, so we have to look at our testing. But if, if we want fast tests, we have to look at our testing practices too. And and um, I guess Gary's uh, talk will be uh, available. 
as one of the PyCon videos. Yeah, it, so uh, definitely, definitely one worth watching and as uh, as a balance to some of the things that I said. <laughs> no, it was great. I I saw a talk from him down at Codemash. It was a similar long uh, lines of of basically rather than typing save in Vim, he had a keyboard shortcut that would save the file and then run the unit test for that file right off the bat and put a little green bar in your Vim window. And it made a lot of sense to me. Coming from the Pylon side of the world, we use um, web tests to do, right, you know, right. uh, full whiskey stack testing. And that's what I had been doing for things. And I realized, you know, I, I mean, it took four seconds, but it was enough that I didn't run it all the time. And, you know, it would get run on the build server, which is great. And I'll accept that, you know, you know, maybe may, maybe, the, maybe I don't push and fire off the build server for a day or two, you know, and I don't know something was broken. Yeah, the feedback cycles are much longer. Yeah. And so, um, but his talk convinced me and, and it, it, made me, it, it makes complete sense to, to break apart the idea of the unit test from the phone functional tests and trying to tie my unit tests, the fast ones, the ones that run in under a second, you know, into my editor environment to, to be continuously yeah, running yeah. those and getting that short feedback yeah, cycle. Yeah, but yeah. definitely there there are a lot of things you need to test the whole stack. And that's where the things like web tester, uh, I don't really know what Django uses to, to walk the whole stack like that. But it, it has a test client that's uh, that's right. quite similar, I think. I, I mean, people talk about trying to get up to 100% um, coverage. Well, I think that's a very good place to start from. Uh, I, I think ideally you want to be kind of around t uh, at least 250% coverage, where you, you have functional tests that cover all of your functionality. Yeah. So all of your features, the, your user-facing features, they're all tested through um, functionally, preferably using something like um, Selenium, where you're really doing through through the browser testing, yeah. and then 100% um, coverage at the the unit test level, and then a bunch of integration tests. That the thing that unit tests don't do is they don't test how things are wired together, how bits are wired Especially together. So you need integration tests that that aren't necessarily driving the whole browser stack, right. but that are just testing that that, that everything um, integrates in in the way it should do. So so about 250% um, <laughs> coverage. That's about the minimum you should be looking there, for. There you go, Michael Ford setting new records for. Uh, um, acceptance levels that's that's awesome I want to see the Hudson report that that run that renders the 250 percent on the, <laughs> on the project the Jenkins sorry oh so that's very cool um, anything what was the coolest thing you saw at Py PyCon this year you've probably been to a few of these by now huh for me PyCon is all about the people that uh, there's a whole bunch of people in the Python community that I only ever get to see at PyCon once a year so the the talks are kind of um they're a nice bonus, <laughs> but they're not the highlights. Uh, there was a lot of interesting um, talk about um, monitoring and DevOps, and uh, so for so for uh, for developers, testing is very important, and, and for people who are deploying, um, monitoring is kind of the corollary. How do you know it's working? Right. How do you know it's working effectively? How do you know which bits are working? So there was a uh, there was a very good talk on continuous deployment by Lawrence Van Van and um, what was particularly uh, I particularly liked the way he put the the focus on not just continuous deployment, but that's alongside continuous integration and good testing practices. Right. And uh, well, you just uh, can't you can't do continuous deployment unless you you know that. Uh, like you're saying, you know, just because you have tests doesn't mean you know it actually didn't break anything. So, if so you're going to go that far, you really have to know that the tests really work the heck out of the code. And he was talking about going going from trunk to deployment in ten minutes. Um, but what he the, the 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 workflow that goes alongside that is you do you do interesting new work um, in in a branch. You you um, you're running your tests on that, mm -hmm. but you know the point at which you you um, merge. From the the branch, the work is complete. You merge onto trunk, and that's going to be on a staged out um, 
but staged out to production, maybe trying it on 10% of your servers first, getting, you've got your monitoring yeah. in place. And, um, and, and there were some interesting monitoring tools being discussed. The, um, um, I think it was the Dropbox guys talked about some of the, the monitoring tools they use. I forget the name, but um, there, there's certainly a lot of interesting stuff. To, that's, again, something we've been looking at in my team. Um, how can we get better monitoring? How can we... Well, it's, it's really interesting because when you go to the continuous deployment route, um, you push the code out, but then you have to watch it to know. Because like you said, maybe your test didn't catch something broke. And I, I, the discussion I think was really interesting was, was like that, was the how do you know if you broke it or not? Uh, if, if 6% of your web requests are, are, are dying, you know, what, what is the norm? Is yeah, that above yeah, the norm yeah. or below the norm? Or look should at things you... like new, new signups or right. um, people who get partway through the process and, and being able to track these kind of things. Right. Like, well, we, even not necessarily that we broke something, but we rolled out this new feature, we rolled out this change to the user, ex inter user interface, the user experience, uh, and actually suddenly... Um, you know, on the the ten percent of our traffic that's that's using this new feature, um, we're actually seeing twenty five percent less people complete the sign up process. Right, right. So this uh, it's maybe not exactly broken, but um, right, let's yeah. not roll this thing out into production <laughs> all the way. This was a bad bad plan. <laughs> no, that's definitely some interesting things going on there. So that's cool. As a sprints, what are you sprinting on down here? I've been working on um, Core Python. Um, I've helped a couple of. We've got a lot of new folk who've been helping helping us increase our test coverage. We're um, limping towards 100% <laughs> some of our standard library code that's that's for sure um, so helping review patches and, and commit those uh, get a few uh, long-standing things um, we've only just uh, well only recently got 3.2 out of the door and whilst we were in the sort of feature freeze for 3.2 there was a bunch of stuff on unit tests that I couldn't work on so got some tickets there to get out of the way uh, and what I really want to get done but haven't put much time into yet is getting uh, again, there were a lot of um, really good new features in unit test in Python 3.2 right. um, that weren't in 2.7, and I'd like to get unit test 2 up to date with the, the new features, up to date with Python 3.2, so people can start using those, the, the, um, yeah, and those if, features and if in you guys versions. aren't on 3.2, you can, unit test 2 is still a package on, on PyPy, right, that they can install. Right, for, for Python 3, yeah, that's right. For unit those of you guys still on 2, 2.6, I mean, yep, how far back yep. can you go with it? Um, unit test 2 is compatible with 2.4. So there you go. Um, there's, I think there's going to be one new feature, which is uh, it's a context manager, so you use it with right. the with statement. This is... Um, I think it's assert warns. So testing warnings has always been mm -hmm. quite difficult because you need to very tightly control what the because warnings are done at the sort of Python interpreter level. It decides what warnings should actually be emitted. So you need to control. You need to run the code with a particular environment in place, and then you need to capture those warnings. And mm -hmm. so it's a little fiddly. So there's a a, um, a little helper context manager. So that's still gonna. You're still going to be able to use unit test 2 in Python 2.4, mm -hmm. but to use that particular feature, right. you're probably going to need to actually be on 2.5. But but everything else is compatible back, back to yeah, 2.4. So if you guys are looking to move to 3, you can start using bits of it now, and that's a that's, good bit to right, start yeah. with. Uh, and I'm also doing, because I'm also doing um, there's a, a Python 3, a unit test 2 Py 3K version as well, which mm. is uh, now that's actually built by taking the Python head from Mercurial and then applying a bunch of patches so it'll work on earlier versions of Python. So even if you're using Python 3.1, you can still use the, the funky new stuff that, that comes in in later okay. versions. So, uh, and, and, I, and I need that for running tests of my own projects where I want right. to test they're compatible with 3.1, but I want to use the, the funky new features in my own test suite. So. Right. Well, that's very, very cool. Um, anything you want to plug or anything? Or... Um uh, you got a great blog over. Um, I, I, I 
find some of the more deeper, interesting articles every once in a while. You know, not not a daily blogger, but when you do, it's uh, some good stuff. Um, what's the URL for that? That's voidspace.org.uk/blog. So and that's, that's on Planet Python. So planet.python.org is another good place to to go for all your Python, uh, <laughs> all your Python needs. But yeah, I, I blog from time to time. Um, um, it's good stuff. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us and talking about testing and mock and the awesomeness of PyCon. Convince people that if you have not come down, you need to come down. Oh, it totally, is worth yeah. the trip. Thanks very much, Rick. We want to thank Michael Ford for taking the time to talk with us here at LocalCast and remind you that we've got much more content coming your way. So stick around and head on over to LocalCast.net. Thanks for listening. <laughs>